everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where a bunch of writers sit around drinking and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's hosting committee is John Schmidt, Chaz and Karen Brinchley, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 62, Tentacles with Nick Mamatas. Welcome, Nick. We're so glad you could join us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I have to start with an argument this time. Mm. And I know that'll go completely against everything you believe in. So (laughs) bear with me. I actually knew your name before Chaz sent me your thing because in the same way that I knew John Scalzi wrote essays and such, but I didn't know he was an author at first until I met him in person. That's putting your foot in it. I have read some of your uh, blogs and essays, and there was one in particular that was about House and Sherlock, because I am a both a House file and a Sherlock file, and I want to say, you're wrong. People freaking love House. <laughs> That's how it got to eight <laughs> seasons. <laughs> oh, sure. It's, I love House, too. Well, and people love the show, and, but uh, there's what I've been seeing, watching. what I was responding to was this idea of people saying, oh, that House, he always breaks the rules. It's no fair. We're having these TV shows about jerks. And we should have TV shows about nice people. Oh, and so I was going to say, uh, people aren't hate-watching him, because hate-watching is what we say for the New England Patriots or the Dallas Cowboys. Nobody hate-watches <laughs> House. And, and I think the truth is the way that he goes and he says, he, he puts forth uncomfortable truths. Everybody lies. Ignoring the mm-hmm. spiritual, ignoring the feeling thing, concentrate on the goal of solving the problem. And, and you caught all the pieces, and many of them, that he was indeed... Uh, Sherlock Holmes of the modern day. Um, they are the male archetype ideal, and I entirely agree with you. And then I started to say, there's a reason that we don't have any gender-swapped Holmes-type characters out here in the West, is because I don't think a woman is allowed to be that unsympathetic in books or TV or movies. Discuss. Hmm. Well, first, I, I don't like House as a human being. <laughs> I like the show. But it really, um, it really uh, um, jumped the shark when he and Scully, or whatever her name was, started getting together. <laughs> and, and so, yeah. But Sherlock Holmes, but I, I know what you mean. I mean, it, it's pretty much just like the whole nasty women that, that the Cheeto goes oh, yeah. on about. We're not talking it, politics. We're not talking politics. <laughs> we're not but talking it's, politics. It's, it's, yeah. Be nice, behave yourself you know, dress pretty, smile, smile, always being, women always being told to smile. Yeah, um, Jeannie, you, your contention that you can't have a Sherlock Holmes character who is female is entirely um, refuted by the success of um, Laurie R. King's um, Mary Russell books. Okay. Who is exactly, I mean, okay, she marries Sherlock Holmes, but she is exactly a Sherlock Holmes figure. No, it's not um, what she, is, she hmm? can do. It's the interaction with others, you know, that she is still feminine, though, that she has those oh, feminine yeah. qualities, not the masculine. Not so much. Um, she's, I mean, she's not a girly girl. No, she can pass herself off as a girly girl, just as she can pass herself off as a bloke. Um, but she has, well, let's say she has the whole range of human achievement available to her. You mean she's just like a man? No, that's. I was trying not to say that. Okay. Because that's not what I mean at all. Um, I mean, there are times when Sherlock Holmes can be a woman, and 
trust me, his 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 secret bolt holes in London are full of yeah, downs. I was, I was nodding at that, yeah. Right. yeah. Well, anyway, so I had to start with that argument with you just to lay it out there, but okay, let us well, keep... Well, TV and film, I think it's definitely the case that uh, is challenging to have a, a woman protagonist who is uh, not friendly, not warm, not sexy. Uh, although I guess something like Atomic Blonde has some of that um, with uh, Charlize Theron. But for books, there are just oh, so many books out there. Now, when you have half a million books a year, you're going to get a few that are going to come through. One that comes to my mind is Sarah Grand's Dope, which is one of my favorite crime novels. Uh, with a very uh, Dope by Sarah Grand. That's G-R-A-N, oh. if you're following me at home. And okay. that is a, uh, basically about a heroin addict detective uh, who's an amateur sleuth who's also a heroin addict who's trying to find uh, a missing woman. And, you know, it's very dark noir and... Uh, it was a hit after a fashion, that's for sure. It you know, sort of uh, brought noir back in a lot of ways that it wasn't, uh, you know, 10 years ago now, that it wasn't really being uh, presented in major publications or in major presses before. So I think there are books like that that definitely do have that kind of uh, dark dour, not sympathetic, not helpful, not empathetic character who nonetheless has some sort of mission that it is and driven for some reasons to do anything. But uh, for film and TV, I definitely think it's more and more difficult to find something like that. Well, the closest they've got is there has to be a great big flaw. Like we could present Jessica Jones on TV as being, yeah, she was pretty unlovable, at least through the first few episodes in there. Yeah. But she had to be broken. She couldn't just be driven professional on top of things, maybe a small addiction. Yeah, trauma. Yeah. yeah, there has to be a trauma that lets a woman be bitchy. Yeah. Although, honestly, I didn't make it past the first episode of Jessica Jones because it was a 44-minute episode and 23 minutes of it is her on a fire escape looking across the street. Yeah. And all the Netflix shows are like that. All the Netflix versions <laughs> are eight episodes, stretched out to 14 episodes with a lot of people just staring off to the side. I think that's, that's art, darling. It's dramatic art of, of the current century. Once upon a time, uh, it was a black and white picture of a cigarette smoldering on an ashtray. <laughs> I mean, just people pointing shins. <laughs> to the cameraman, the camera operator. All right. Now, on the ten, onward to tentacles. You tentacles. Seem, you seem to love tentacles, which is fair because I love tentacles. And we all know that HP was pretty flawed, but the torch is, is beautifully being passed around, and I like some of the things you've done with it. Yeah. So Explain we, more. Nick, tell us about <laughs> your tentacles. Tell us about your tentacle so, uh, love and fascination. Well, I guess... What, we try, what I'm trying to avoid is the question of, how did you first get started with H.P. Lovecraft? Because every answer is the same. Oh, I was a kid and I came across it. And so that's everyone's answer. We asked them, oh, when did you get into science fiction? I was a child. When did you start writing? I was a child. Yeah. <laughs> Forget about all of that. You know, nobody ever says, oh, well, I was just basically an illiterate living in a cave and then, some, then a novel came to me and I wrote it down. <sighs> but as far as why I decided to start writing Lovecraftian fiction, honestly, it was a pretty mercenary decision. Um, I was hanging around in St. Mark's Bookshop, the now defunct but always legendary bookshop in East Village. And I was at, looking at the remainder table, and I saw a book of letters from Lovecraft. And also, related to that, next to it was a book of letters from Kerouac. And I thought, wow, people even read these guys' letters? They must be reading anything with these guys in it. I'll make a novel with mm -hmm. both of them combined. And then they'll, all the Kerouac fans, all the Beats, and all the Lovecraftians will read, will read my stuff. And that was of course oh. not the case. So, uh, only the intersection of the two groups read my stuff. Do we so call it? A, we I mean, it was this weird cult. Is it a pastiche? Is it an homage? Or is it unashamed fanfic? Because I'm good with any of them. 
I mean, the combining of, of Lovecraft and Kerouac, you know, a little bit of an homage in there, but, you know, I think I love, I love uh, it. I love the, people the first novel, which just, uh, which just re- was reissued recently by Dover publication, the, uh, is more of a prestige of Kerouac. It's Kerouac is the main character, and it's insufficiently in his voice that uh, someone who is a scholar of the Beats, who is uh, the spouse of a fairly prominent weird fiction writer, looked over her husband's shoulder and said, oh, what, what Kerouac is this? Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was... Yes, that's uh, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. But the uh, themes are Lovecraftian themes and the settings of Lovecraftian America. And it is not, an, not fanfic. I guess you have to be a fan of something. And I'm some of them a fan. But there's also a critique and a subversion. And, uh, of course, everyone subverts everything these days. And everyone critiques everything these days. Every, uh, but books are made out of other books. And so... I think it's interesting it is, it is that a certain way, anybody can write about vampires without referring to Stoker. But it's super mm. hard to write about, you know, tentacled creatures from other worlds without referring to Lovecraft directly. And is it just, is it a little bit newer or what do we think is it because it's so unique he, he sketched out the archetype for the old gods you, you can write about standard tentacle horrors and a number of other tentacle horrors exist like walk to pie and the chaosium novels etc cetera, etc cetera. but those are very definitely the great old one that's lovecraft yeah whereas you know, Cthulhu is a thing, and Dracula, if you say Dracula, it's certainly Stoker. But if you just say vampires, there have been vampires everywhere, and there's tons of mythology all over the planet for tentacled creatures of the deep. Well, the thing is, so there's, I mean, tentacled creatures of the deep. Um, I mean, you know, the, the first vision I saw was, um, was the Disney version of... Um, of uh, what's the guy who had the the underwater shell thing, and they had 3, the yes, yes, that one, and 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 hacking at tentacles that were attacking them, and think I mean tentacles. I think of them as a sea thing, not so much as a an on land tentacles thing. But then I may not. I'm not as 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 tentacle expert as 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 you tentacle experts are. Um, but I would think actually Kerouac would be. I, I mean, kind of bringing Kerouac into the um, into the kind of science fiction horror mythos. mythos would actually be pretty cool. Now, I, I apologize, not read that book. Now I'm going to have to. I think that would be very interesting um, because it's not done, and the Beats were there were trying to build their own new thing, and uh, I think bringing them, jumping them forward, and and seeing what they would make in a brave new world. I don't know. But anyway, I would, I think that's, that's actually very interesting. Yeah. So the, yeah. Tentacular, the tentacle, and you know, the tentacle comes from both the sea and the sky, like the cosmic version that's coming from the sky. Cause the sky is kind of like the sea. It's, it's, it's void. It's endless. It's full of mysterious things. We don't really have a lot of access to it in the same way. We don't really have a lot of access to the sea, which is you no, know, it's, it's a spaceship. And, uh, it's exactly the exactly. same. You have it yeah. right. You know, ether ships yeah. from the from the nineteenth century sailing from here to Mars. You know, thanks, oh. Jazz. You know, think of it. <laughs> there was still can, space was considered a kind of ocean. It was just the next sort of ocean. Yeah. So, the That's tentacles right. from yeah. the deep and from the beyond and from deep in space makes perfect sense. Yeah. The the um, other thing about this though is that with tentacles. Tentacled creatures from the deep. We don't have a shorthand for that. I mean, that's why Stoker managed to dig so deep, because he could say vampire. We don't have a, a vampire word 
for massive, weird, tentacled monsters. I tell um, you that we do, and they play hockey, Kraken. and they're the Kraken. Kraken. Oh, that's right. We do have a Kraken. I allow you the Kraken. Or Kraken Nick, how do I say that say? properly in, in Greek? Greek? Kraken or Kraken? Yeah. Uh, depends on ancient Greek or modern Greek. But Kraken is fine. But also, re recall that uh, one thing that is very popular was very popular for my, in my lifetime was the movie uh, Class of the Titans, where the Kraken is not a central creature. And uh, oh, I think the, the question is really this. I think, you know, I even made the same point some years ago in an interview. I said, no, we don't call vampire fiction stokerism because vampires are very large. But I think it's a process. I think it's a process of weird fiction, which isn't just about tentacles, but it's about the vibe and the cosmic pessimism and the scale that Lovecraft was a major factor in, but not the only author of, is now becoming post-Lovecraftian while also being reminiscent of Lovecraft. But surely, I mean, uh, if you can imagine just some years after Stoker's Dracula, of course there were always these vampire films and they were always Eastern Europeans uh, who were noble and they, they were mm -hmm. fine with sex and death. And now then we had the vampire's point of view with Anne Rice. Now we have comical vampires and vampires as superheroes and vampires as this. And I think that process is happening with Lovecraftian or post-Lovecraftian weird fiction too. It just hasn't happened yet, partially because I don't know if it fits the novel as easily as a vampire does. And I've written Lovecraftian novels people have. A lot of them tend to be pretty short or tend to only use weird fiction as flavoring for what's otherwise a straightforward supernatural thriller. See, now I think your sequel has to be The Motorcycle Diary and the Biarchy. And, you know, Fear, fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and beyond. Well, I wrote, I wrote that too, actually. I wrote a book with my friend Brian Keane uh, with Hunter S. Thompson versus uh, Cthulhu, essentially. I was going to oh, say, it was right for Hunter there. Yeah. And both, both Kerouac and The Beats generally, like William S. Burroughs and Hunter S. Thompson, were phantasmagorical while being realistic. They, they found the phantasmagorical in journalism, essentially, in autofiction. And so that's why the voice, I thought, was very good for using, for appropriating to talk about Lovecraftian themes. Sure. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So have you read China Mievel's Kraken? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Book. So what did you think? I reviewed it some years ago for uh, Sci-Fi Wire. I liked it a lot. It was actually, yeah. uh, it was a lot of fun. I also thought that it was probably... 50% incomprehensible to anyone who's not a member of the far left. Yeah, because, that is kind of the nature of China. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But, yeah, yeah. It's a novel about fantasy and magic and crazy things, but it's also uh, a novel about sectarianism. Yes. yes. It's these micro-micro-religions or these micro-micro-Trotskyist groups mm -hmm. and Maoist groups. That uh, So the, the funny part of Kraken is that the, uh, the main cult is uh, of these sort of, you know, uh, worshippers who are trying to bring about some kind of end of the world, some kind of apocalypse, are essentially the, uh, the Anglicans of, of the society. They're, they're, they're the normal straight-laced ones, and the weirder Mayans. ones. Let's be fair. They could be Mayans. There was a beautiful <laughs> you know, end of the world coming. It's right there in, in cuneiform. <laughs> so. Well, Mievel's writing, writing in a sort of uh, British, British idiom. Right. And so he's, he's thinking, you know, who are the straight-laced, almost state-backed uh, state religious force versus all these sort of little nuts? Yeah. So the Anglicans are also the Labour Party, and they're also the, all these people trying to in, enter the Labour Party and withdraw activists from it. So you, you, to really, really uh, get 100% of the book, you really need to spend some time on a Sunday morning trying to sell a newspaper to nobody, who's, no, who nobody cares about, like you know, the Workers' Vanguard or, or that. Yeah, but everybody's done that. Everybody's done that, surely. 
was going to say, I have a strange beginning with Lovecraft, and it wasn't Lovecraft at all. So I knew the rhyme, strange is the night where the black stars rise, and stranger moons circled as through the skies, but stranger still is lost Carcosa, because by God, I read a lot of dark over. Literally, it was MZB who led me to say, I was asked, because somebody else made a joke about this, you know, about about Lovecraft, like, what? And I I was in high school, and I had to go to a library the old-fashioned way, lacking the interwebs, to go and say, what is this? You mean she didn't just make this up? (laughs) So I I love other authors using it and making it their own. And that's what, I mean, I'm guessing I'm have to confess that, yes, I was a child when I found out about this. And I, I found out about it from uh, the Ghostbusters cartoon. Awesome. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, which had a Cthulhu episode, uh, Cthulhu, they call it Cat-Thulhu for, I guess, for uh, trademark reasons. And oh. they were just talking about it, uh, the Necronomicon and Cat-Thulhu and that kind of thing. And one of the characters says, oh, we, we, don't, we can't read the Necronomicon, but we can read H.P. Lovecraft. He's okay. And, that, and it's, I was just sitting there eating cereal where I'm going, oh, that sounds real. Huh. That sounds like right. a real thing someone is telling me to check out. <laughs> cool. and, uh, yeah. and soon you'll be writing cultist sea shanties and singing them with the rest of us around a fire. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you started your life in film, really. Do you, here's a question. Do you imagine you're writing in imagery first or in news or in words first? I mean, do you, do you kind of see the whole pictures in your head when you're writing out the, the thing? Or is it, are you more beguiled by the written word? More, more voice. So I spend a lot of time on point of view. Usually when I'm writing, I shuffle through various perspectives and points of view. Should this be in the first person? Should it be in the second? Should it be third objective? Should it be third subjective? Should it be omniscient? Should it be uh, sort of ossified first as in a journal or you know a letter? And when I get that point of view right, because once you make a point of view decision, many other decisions are made for you. Sure. Does, some, does, that, mean that, you, does that mean that you try several of these with each new project? Until the voice sounds right. Sometimes the pre-composition in my mind, and sometimes, uh, certainly right after my child was born, I uh, was distracted. And so that, so in 2013, 2014, I have a lot of first thousand words for various stories and different points of view, and then it takes a while to get it. But since then, now that he's six, I'm back to normal. And I usually do the pre-composition where just think and think and think. When I hear that first sentence that sounds right, or that first paragraph that sounds right in my mind, then I can run through an entire draft, was, more or less. I was just hit with a, now we are six with tentacles. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, you can do that one. Okay, I, I'll, I will. So you There's said, not much to run with tentacles. I was going to say, so do you feel like you have sort of the story in your head or the plot in your head? Mm-hmm. or is this, I guess this is more for, for short stories, then you sort of imagine the whole image in one, right? Uh, I imagine it's sort of the start, like uh, the top of the roller coaster. Right. And I don't know where the rest of the roller coaster is, or like the cliche of you're driving at night. And I don't drive, so I hear, but I hear when you drive at night, it's hard to see. And you can only see the headlights ahead of you. So, but I, once I know which direction I'm on, which road I'm on, and I can drive in that direction, then I go through to the end. And honestly, a lot of my short fiction doesn't have, isn't much in the way of plot. A lot of them are written like confessions of a first-person narrator or uh, <clears throat> objects like written objects, like a blog post or a, a listicle in fiction form. But more recently, I've been working with novelettes and things like that with as more of a plot. And even then, I'll, I'll just break through and change point of view to have a direct address to the, to the reader and that kind of thing. So no, I don't conceive of the plot as a line, um, but I conceive of the voice and the character. And then what happens to the character, what the character says in response to what's happening or response to their own actions sort of makes the decisions for me. So is when I'm teaching, I definitely teach. I teach the tax triangle. I teach plot points. I teach reversal of fortune. When I write, I don't do any of those things. <laughs> uh, 
Because I teach as an editor, like I teach in, in, in an editorial way, as a prescriptive editorial way, but I write very yes. differently than, than I do. you enjoy teaching? I love teaching. I really enjoy it. And I really uh, miss it because we're now in the middle of a plague. Yeah. And I really yeah. like teaching in person, you know, just small groups of five or six or seven. Yeah. And I like online teaching as well, but it's, it's much more uh, time consuming. Well, I've actually had friends who've taken your class and, and they give you, you know, A++ thumbs up as a teacher. So oh, I'm glad uh, to hear it. Yeah. So do you, do you view this, you know, eventual breakdown as being a dystopian inevitability or are we just going to welcome our new tentacled overlords when they come? You know, I'm actually pretty optimistic. I think the virus uh, has uh, great radical plans for the world and they're carrying them out and it can't be resisted. So, so if you want to get rid of the virus, there's no way around it. We're going to have to change for the better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We so in a way, which you know, is much more, much more deadly, uh, you know, killed half of Europe, but then it also eliminated feudalism. Yeah. So and we'll see what this virus eliminates. That's, that's distasteful. Do you, have you yeah. established, is there a Nick Mamatas trope, or do you have readers that are going to show up and buy your books expecting your traditional tentacle art town? Are you going to surprise us with a by the skin of our teeth later? Or You know, to a certain extent, people have said, oh, every one of your books is different, but all, almost all of my books are kind of the same thematically in that it's usually a well-begone, very smart but not that smart person being tossed around in the first person by uh, <laughs> some terrible events whether they're tentacular or, or Lovecraftian or uh, spiders that are intelligent collectively or and my novel, I'm working on two novels now, one of which is under contract, so I've got to actually do it, which <laughs> is The Word, um, which is a speculative thriller called The Second Shooter. And it is about a person writing a book about mass shooting events and how so many of them start with the idea of a second shooter that's there that ends up being false that, you know, the original stories are coming out of a newspaper article or they're witnessing, oh, I saw two guys with machine gun. And it ends up being one guy. And where are all these second shooters going? Where, are they just huh. he's a eyewitness or are they something read behind it? And, and, of course, it's a science fiction novel, so there is something behind it. <laughs> and the other one I'm working on is a uh, post-singularity version of The Tempest with, uh, from, Cal from the point of view of the Caliban character, where okay. the only human in a very small world of, of post-humans who are essentially wizards given their post-human... Uh, digital implants and that kind of thing. So, so things get different, but it's always, it's always like someone who's kind of looking for something and something gigantic appears thematically, uh, ideologically, supernaturally, and how they deal with that. So those, are, those, those both sound really good. Do you have any sort of um, idea of when uh, people can read them? Do they have, you know... Well, the second shooter is supposed to come out from Solaris Books in November 2021. Okay. What I proposed is depending on me finishing the book by November 2020. So maybe 2022 <laughs> is a possibility. <laughs> see what happens. How are you, uh, how are you finding writing in this time of the pandemic? Is it, is it easier or harder for you? It was harder now. It's become easier. Honestly, um, I had a very hard time, as many people did, with the pandemic. <clears throat> but um, I moved to California in 2008, and I got my first ever office job, which uh, lasted 11 years, and we ended the job in 2019, and that was a very rough time variety of reasons, but I was used to being home a lot and being alone a lot in the years before I moved to California. So I uh, sort of snapped to it and I wrote the 20, first 20,000 words of the Tempest novel, which is on submission now to various publishers to go see. I mean, it's August, so nobody's, everyone's in the Hamptons getting COVID. <laughs> but when the survivors crawl back to their offices in September, I'm hoping that someone will, will buy this book. 
And uh, the second shooter I worked on in 2016, I haven't looked at in years. I would just have to be floating around and I changed agents. And it was purchased by Solaris in February of this year, right before the, uh, the, the virus hit America, the United States. So it was really lucky happenstance that I got my advance check the day I was laid off from the ah, bookstore where I've been ah, working. Great. Very nice. So we're all, everybody was freaking out. Like, oh, here's a big check for me. And I also got the check for uh, my anthology, my Lovecraft anthology, Wonder and Glory Forever, on that same day. So I was like sort of cruising for a while. And um, I wrote 20,000 Words of the Becalavos novel, um, the Tempest novel. I'm now writing um, 26,000 Words of, of uh, the other novel, The Second Shooter. So that's going pretty well. I moved my coffee table out of my living room, put it in the bedroom. And so now I do Tai Chi and yoga every day. <laughs> So tell, I, mean, I was going to say, tell me about your routine. That how, how did it work for you to settle down? We have, we've had a lot of people that write in that say, how do you do it? How do you be creative? I've got nothing. Give us a routine, a day in the life of Nick. Um, I wake up around a quarter to eight. Well, I wake up around six, look at my phone to make sure no one has died of COVID that I know over the, over the night, go back to sleep, wake up at 7.45, say hello to a couple of friends, drink water, drink uh, some magic pills I get in the mail um, that are supposed to reverse aging. But it's more like a placebo, but it works for mine because it, it, it you know, makes your mind go. Uh, I do some power yoga. I look at my social media and email. I slap uh, around a bit. Do you find yourself having to limit social media right now? I mean, there's a lot of nope. people who are discovering that it's, nope. it's a big, yeah. No, nope, I've, I've had my face in the fire hose of social media for a very long time. Okay. I will say I, look at, I, I post less and I get into fights less, but I consume just as much as always. Okay, why do and you get into writing or do some other work? Sorry? Why do you get into fights less? This is not the <laughs> Nick we know and love. <laughs> uh, getting old, wanting to get other things going on, trying to be nicer in general, you know. Okay. okay. Interesting theory. It's yeah. noble. What, yeah, what like tools that. do you use? Are you a are you a scrivener? We have a we have a scrivener, let's just call him cultist, that, mm-hmm. that talks about the greatest, or do you do you write it out longhand? What are what are your uh, what's your path? I just use word. I just use Word and type it through. Cool. And uh, I mean, it wasn't until my last, my two novels go away, it was I could change the name of my file. <laughs> you know, so now I do like, you know, name of the book, 10, 10K for the first 10,000 words. Then I add a thousand words, okay, now it's 11K. But before <laughs> that, I was, I was always fucking around with versions and making mistakes and losing thousands of words. But I basically use Word as a typewriter. I just, <laughs> beginning to end. And then I go back over it a little bit and have somebody read it for me, like a friend. Or someone who was invested in the success <laughs> to point out, you know, where I leave things out. And I'm a lever outer, and I write short novels. And, you know, my longest novel has been seventy-five thousand words, which is not. Uh, That's barely a, a novel at all, you wimp. Exactly. Hey, we're not being mean here, Chaz. <laughs> I'm being <sorry. laughs> Most of my novels are ten short stories in a row about the same person. <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that. Well, you know, Nick, if you're if you're you know sitting around with a a, a novel you want someone to read. I, you know, you have my email address. Absolutely. In fact, I, uh, Chaz and Karen wrote a novella for me over, over, over a weekend. And it was, oh, it was good. Experience. Yeah. It, so it that's coming out in January. Huh. And although, although it's like, huh, Nick wrote this, did he? Hmm. <laughs> that's, that's really, really good. But, 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 you know, kind of in the, on the tentacle side of, you know, interesting kind of thing. It was actually really good. So, um. <laughs> So, yeah. So, for those who might be curious about the name of that novella, it's called yes. The Planet Breaker's Son, and it's coming out in a small sort of chapbook-style collection 
also called the Planet Breaker Sun in January from PM Press, which is an anarchist uh, publisher, yeah. also local today. And it's a series of what's called Outspoken Authors, in, edited by Terry Bisson. And it's basically yes. been friends of Terry, and now they're moving on to uh, people Terry kind of knows. Oh, okay. <laughs> it would be awesome if there was eventually an Enemies of Terry. That's well, the right. Thing is, the thing oh, is, wouldn't that be fun? So I... I I, I must jump in here. Oh. Terry Bisson is a friend of mine. Yeah. He and I were the ones who founded SF and SF, so I've known mm -hmm. him for 20-odd years, although I haven't seen him as much lately because I haven't been able to go to SF as an SF. But I really love his passion, okay? I love his passion Absolutely. for left-wing things, and, and I love his, his, you know, the, I don't, what's the, the title of his, of his press you said a minute ago? But I love what he's doing with that. I think um, I'm, I'm very oh, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating thing, and I'm happy to be, I'm proud to be a part of it, the Outspoken Authors series. Um, I just don't know Terry that well, so I wouldn't call him a friend. He's a friendly acquaintance. But I love his stuff. I love his stuff since I was a kid. I wasn't throwing shade on Terry, but um, it doesn't seem to be like the young guy. Oh, you're the young writer in this group. Because I'm 48. So give us, you, you actually wrote, not only have been writing and teaching and all of these things, but you wrote a writing guide, Starve Better, uh, Surviving the Endless Horror of the Writing Life. Mm -hmm. Tell me about it. What, what is the theory of it? How do you survive? Well, um, a lot of writing books deal with book-length materials, which if you're starving, doesn't help. Because step one, write a novel, that might take two years. Step two, get an agent, that might take a year. Step three, sell that book, that might take a year. So you've already been starved to death, you know, seven times over. So Starve Better is about writing in short subjects, both short fiction and short nonfiction, like feature reporting, interviews, service journalism, that kind of stuff, with Eddie being. And so I give some tips on how to write short fiction effectively, especially for science fiction and fantasy, and some tips about how to uh, be a freelance writer of, you know, feature articles. Like I did a lot of sort of journalism and essays and things like that in the list for the Village Voice, for uh, business magazines, technical magazines, art magazines, and I still dabble occasionally, but now, of course, the bottom has fallen out of nonfiction. When I was writing, when I was writing in the early 2000s, even a schmuck like me who didn't want to leave his house to get a buck a word or 50 cents a word writing for a business magazine or doing an email okay. interview with somebody, and now, of course, advertising fell apart and the web took over, so now, if I get 25 cents a word, I'm thrilled, except that it's been 20 okay. years of inflation. Uh you got to consider IT security. I still get paid a buck a word. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, Jeannie, if you need to hire someone, you, you've got someone right there. <laughs> Excellent. That's right. He'd be good. Yeah. So also, so the, there's medium.com, which is another very public. Anyone can post, and you're paid by the number of people who read or something. But they keep jerking around the algorithm of how people pay, get paid. So people keep getting paid less and less and less. I'm shocked. So, yeah, I know. I'm shocked by that. So there was that. There was something around that about 20 years ago too. Uh, like one of the original blog platforms had that kind of. We'll pay you a dime, a, a dime of you. We made a penny of you. We made another cent of you. I was reading a book by my friend, by another friendly acquaintance, Jason Boog, the other day, which was about writers in the 30s and writers in the early 2000s. And he was one of these bloggers who has been producing tons of content for this blog platform, the name of which I forget, for these pennies a word, and ended up cutting. You know, not by not in half, but by you know ninety percent every time. Yeah. To the point where he was running for free, but he kept running for free just to just to act like he still had a job. Okay. Oh. So. And, oh, yeah, I think yeah. That. yeah. 
Well, I was going to say, what's what's your best advice to a, a would-be best-selling author? Then should they should they try to write? You've, you've written a lot of standalones. I couldn't find any series you've done. Is the series dead? Is it just getting started? What do, what do you see? Oh no, the series is huge. And I mean, one of my flaws as a writer, if you if your goal is you know writing uh, to be a best-selling author, is that I don't write a series. I don't write eighty thousand, ninety thousand word novels. I write the novels I am capable of writing. Because I spent years squeezing in stories and squeezing in chapters while writing other things like journalism and also like writing term papers for students. I was a very successful term paper artist for a long time. And so I trained myself to write short and succinct in a way that is not necessarily com- the most commercial way of writing. But yeah, absolutely. The series is it. And it is a, there's a piece of that. I think. To make money because I don't write series. And I don't write and I don't, and I don't care to, I mean, honestly, I don't even read many series. I read the first two books of so many trilogies. And I'm like, Oh, I figured it out. I know how it's going to end. Uh-oh. Watch that 10 books about the same person. I can barely read two stories about the same person. Give me something else every time. So okay. my, my reading and writing interests are, are, are distinct. So my, my vision of being a writing, making a living as a writer is writing many different sort of things as opposed to writing a, a series of, of novels that can continue and become a television show or that can continue for 14, 15 novels or that kind of business. Although I presume so if somebody we, wanted to turn, I, I mean, I saw there was a webcomic of you and I went through and had to read it. And if somebody threw their nasty old money at you to turn one of your novels into a series, I'm sure you wouldn't just say no, no. No, I'm happy to do it. And uh, <laughs> I've done a little dabbling in movies too. As you mentioned, I started off as a gaffer. And when I was working at this media, I helped make a film called Ledger Tomorrow from one of our books, All You Need Is Kill. I, you know, I wrote the treatment, the original treatment for it that was totally abandoned. The only thing that, that survived we, we just we just introduced the was, treatment as a concept. So would you mind terribly stopping and explaining to listeners what you mean by treatment? Sure. A film treatment is a is a, a summary of the story. So it could be four or seven pages long. Often does not have any dialogue in it, but it just tells you the the, 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 the recitation of events of the story. So I took the novel, All You Need Is Kill by uh, Hiroshi Sakurazaka. I boiled it down to four pages so that someone's assistant's intern could read it and then translate it to a sentence. The sentence being, uh, it's Groundhog Day, made Starship Troopers, and uh-huh. uh, from there we were off to the races, and we got someone to write a script, and the script was great, and then it wasn't used, because Tom Cruise got attached to it, so instead of being oh. an 18-year-old Japanese guy, the hero was a 50-year-old American. And you were the achievement for that, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And then the film was made, and the one thing that survived from my version, my treatment of it, and the treatment was just for me as an employee of this media, not as a you know, freelancer or screenwriter, was... One of the characters is called the Full Metal Bitch, but they didn't want to use that. So there's a scene where she walks out and everyone's going, oh, it's the Full Metal. And she punches the eye in the face before she says bitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing that I came up with that survived the, 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 that the is... different versions of the film script and the, the shooting and the editing. Then on behalf of our sound engineer, I have to thank you because he said he watched that movie and he's like, Tom Cruise dies a thousand deaths. It's the happiest thing he'd ever seen because he doesn't like <laughs> So on behalf of, of Dave Welsh, thank you. You're welcome, Dave Welsh. <laughs> so, what, so, so Nick, when, when you're sitting around um, not doing yoga um, and have had your morning um, beverage and want to read something, who do you reach for? Who are you interested in reading? Oh, I, I will say I've had a lot of trouble reading over the past year, but I've been getting back into it slowly but surely. And I've not been reading a ton of science fiction or fantasy, although I did recently read and love The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, which mm. is a horror novel about four guys who live on a reservation, and they, they kill the wrong deer. Let's put it that way. 
Oh dear. <laughs> the first hundred pages or so are kind of, it's like, oh, it's like a Stephen King novel, but with American Indians, with Native Americans in, in it. But then after that guy gets, not to, uh, who cares, we'll, we'll spoil it. After that guy gets killed on page 100, then it gets really good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Then, then, the, then the point of view shifts to the point of view of the antagonist. Oh. We're, we're seeing things through her eyes, you know, the, the supernatural antagonist, and such a beautiful antagonist, and written in such a strange way that is both otherworldly and entirely round in the human experience. It's really incredible. So I love oh. that book a lot. Excellent. So are you, are you, do you consider yourself more of a horror writer or a science fiction writer or a mainstream writer? What, you know, if, if you were to... To, to um, pigeonhole yourself, what would you what would you do? I'm a just a writer. When I'm writing okay. an essay, I'm an essayist. When I'm writing a horror novel or horror, I'm a horror writer. When I'm writing science fiction, I'm a science fiction writer. When I'm writing crime or mystery, I'm a I'm a, I'm a mystery writer. Cool. But again, it's like the worst thing to do if you want you know a career or a reputation, but I, I don't care. And the next <laughs> because of, because why why do you want, why do you want to be writers? They want to be their own boss. They want to work at home and be their own boss. They don't want fifty thousand bosses of the readers, or they don't want their agent to be the boss, they don't want their editor to be the boss. So to not have your agent be the boss or editor be the boss, you have to do a lot of different things. Yep. That way the power of the bossiness, of the authoritarianism of publishing, or of the, uh, the reverse authoritarianism of the, of the massive fans, you know, the Nietzschean weak crowd taking over the strong author or whatever, are diluted by not having any fans. <laughs> so do, do you have a Patreon or something like that? I have a little Patreon where I review books and films that I read, but honestly, it's a fun little Patreon, but I don't do it as much because I have been having trouble reading over the past year, but now I'm slowly surely getting back into it. So I don't really care about, so yeah, you want to the Patreon, go right ahead. I only post two or three things there a month, but my main interest in, in make, sort of making money with books is editing them. So I have an anthology coming out and writing that's, them. That's uh, The Wondering Glory uh, Forever, right? When is that going to come that's out? That's right. So that's another, that's another Lovecraftian anthology of, Mostly recent reprints that explored, underexplored part of Lovecraftian fiction, which is the sublime. Okay. Okay. As that opposed makes to the horrific or the humorous. <laughs> All right. Well, we will put links to these stories. And, of course, naturally everything else we mentioned on the website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. Nick, if somebody's got some questions for you and they write in, can we uh, talk you into answering them? Absolutely. Beautiful. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhutsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Eternally Jackal Designs, enabling you all to wear WDC swag across your chest. And hey, thanks for listening. Thank you.